to the Completely Unnecessary Skeptical Podcast. I am Nathan, and joining me today is Craig. Hello. And Susie. Hello. And first item on the agenda is our email feedback that we've had. Uh, it's quite exciting this week. If you didn't catch the last episode, we had some email from Philip asking us about chiropractic and children and mentioning that there was a chipmunks in Tauranga that offers chiropractic services on site. So we, uh, we talked a bit about that and there's just been an update from Philip who sent us another email and he says, news on chipmunks. I've just had a long chat with the owner-operator of the Tauranga chipmunks. He was very concerned and has emailed the subcontracted chiros. He said that if I did not get a good response in a week, he would cancel the contract without question. If they did make contact, he would hold off until he had talked to me and found out a bit on his own. He said it was not worth the very small rent he gets, and his first concern is the children and what people think of chipmunks. Think of the children. Won't somebody think of the children? <laughs> <laughs> I live in Auckland, but I visit Tauranga all the time, so obviously uh, Philip is one of their biggest customers, <laughs> which is just fantastic, and... Yay for Philip. Yes, well done, Philip. Uh, he goes on to say, uh, I have to say I believe him as I have watched him work many times and he is always amazing with his staff and clients. Also, the coffee is very good. And when I told him that all he needed was Wi-Fi, he told me it was done on Monday and he even gave me a password to have access whenever I was there. Wow. Thanks, guys, for prompting me to follow up on my concerns, as it looks like it was not a battle, but just a matter of polite discussion. I will let you know how this goes. So, yay us, but mostly yay Philip. Yes, well done, Philip. I feel like well, I want to nominate him for some sort of an award. I'm going to talk to the sceptics and see if we have a... Um, an activist of the year or something that we could um, nominate him for at the next conference. But, uh, yeah, that's, um, that's just phenomenal. Philip the Skeptical Avenger. Well done. <laughs> okay, and we have another email from Philip as well. And uh, I should, probably should have done this one first. But um, he says, Hi, Craig. 10 out Hi. of 10 for that last show. It was funny, well-paced, sounded great, and was informative. You guys are really starting to gel. Please keep it up. And uh, this is why I say I should have read this one first. I have written to the Chipmunk Kairos again and hope to have more info. Uh, he also offers to give us $30 so that we can get access to that paper we were trying to get access to. But Susie says yep. she's found that and she's going to report on that later. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your kind offer, Philip. But Thank you, Philip. Yes, quiet. and we will certainly take money from people. We're not proud <laughs> if uh, people want to give us money. He's also writing to the Ponsonby News to mention the conflict of interest, although I suspect that's Thank too you. late to hit the latest issue because I have seen that and well, he wasn't in it. On another topic, you guys seem to back atheism but have not really delved into the subject. I would love to hear all your views as an episode topic. Not because it will make me think one way or the other about you guys, but because it is a subject of interest for me. And I believe that if you don't become an atheist through being a sceptic, then you are doing scepticism wrong. Thanks, Philip. We'll finish all of the email, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about atheism. Okay, so that's the two emails from Philip. And we also have an email from Stephen, and uh, he says... Hi guys, love the show. It's great to hear some Nazulan accents on the internets. What does that mean? I think he means New Zealand, but never mind. <laughs> I have a comment about episode 15 and the atheist bus, bus campaign and vandalism. And then he quotes us. Nathan said, the bus company is allowing for the fact that Christians are more likely to vandalise an ad on a bus than, say, atheists would be to vandalise an ad that a religious group has put up. 
And then Susie said that was a very interesting point and then went on to talk about the tax evasion of the other group. Um, Stephen would like us to say, uh, would like to say that the bus company was supposedly allowing for the fact that an atheist ad would likely be vandalised, not that Christians would likely vandalise an atheist ad. The difference is subtle but important. Most vandalism of this nature is intended to provoke a reaction. I strongly suspect that the people that paint Flying Spaghetti Monster and Harry Potter slogans on churches and there's a link to that, are the same people who paint pro-God messages on atheist billboards. They don't really care about religion or atheism, they are just trying to piss people off. They are the same as internet trolls. I realise this was not the main point of the segment, so I hope that I'm not being too pedantic. And seeing as you mentioned it, too pedantic is spelt with two O's, not one. <laughs> Thanks for the great work. Looking forward to the next show. Regards, Stephen. Um, thank you for your email, Stephen. Um, I, I, I guess he has a point. He has a point. He, yes. he has a point. I You're think right. we all agree with that. I was making assumptions. We were all making assumptions that um, it was the Christians who were... We were being bigoted. bigoted. I don't know that necessarily we were wrong, <laughs> but there is a possibility... Well, we have no evidence. We don't, we we don't, don't know yes, We haven't seen anybody spray-painting uh, billboards or so on, so we don't know what their motivations are. And, to, and uh, also, to be fair, there are probably people who do vandalise churches with atheistic-type messages. It's not the sort of thing I would do as an atheist, but presumably there are atheists that might do that, and presumably there are non-atheists that might do that as well, as he said, just troll. So, yeah, fair enough. Uh, I don't take it back, though. <laughs> fair enough. So, um, to moving on and talking about atheism as we have been requested to do. Atheism is a topic of interest. So, oh, the first thing I wanted to point, I wanted to bring up was Philip's comment. He said something to the point that if, if you don't become an atheist as a sceptic, then you're doing, doing scepticism wrong. And I don't know that that's... I've heard arguments both ways for that. Um, in fact, I think Kylie was talking about that at the conference. Did we mention that in the interview we had with her? Did no, we go over that? No, I don't think we, we did. Um, and she was basically saying that I guess the argument is sort of um, non-overlapping magisteria kind of argument that you can be an atheist and a sceptic. And they're not necessarily the same. Not necessarily the same thing. And the, I think the other point that she was making was that you should, if you're a sceptic, you should stick to scepticism. If you're an atheist, because there are atheist groups that do atheism and secularism and what have you, um, so what the sceptics need to do is they need to focus on their area of expertise. They need to look at pseudoscience, paranormal, so on and so forth. But who's to say that's, that is... I mean, what are the rules of scepticism? I don't think it was suggested as a rule. I think what she's saying is it would be a good idea if sceptics fo focused on scepticism because there are other groups focusing on everything else. Actually, and that's, that's a good point. And that's not, I think, what she was saying. That there are sceptics who are deists. Well, well not, not just even deists, but there are some prominent sceptics who yeah. are Christians. And so I guess the point was so that you don't lose these people or that they are, don't feel attacked in any way and they can still contribute to the um, sceptical community or, you know, cause, um, that the two things should that the two things were essentially unrelated or should be kept separate. I th it's more about that. I mean, I'm kind of with... Philip here, I don't, I don't really get how you can 
But I guess some people are sceptical about yeah, pseudoscientific health stuff, or there are people who are sceptical about the paranormal, and they're not necessarily sceptical about all of these things. I can sympathise with both sides of this argument, because as you may know, if you've listened to some of our earlier episodes, uh, I came from young earth creationism and fundamental Christianity into scepticism in about 2006. And I got to scepticism first... I mean, it was very, very easy for me to be sceptic because I already, uh, being a magician, and I, I disapproved of psychics and what have you, so I, that was very easy for me to take on. It took me about a year, though, to go from being a fundamental Christian to being a hardcore atheist. So I can see you that... You don't do things by half, do you? No, I don't. I'm a very extreme sort of <laughs> one end or the other. So... Yes, I do think that if you apply scepticism, you should really become an atheist at the end of it, because that just seems logical to me. But you can be a Christian and still call yourself a skeptic. You just don't have, at that particular point in time, you're not applying that skepticism to your Christianity. I don't think we should alienate people because of that, this is for whatever me reason. Of that lady who came to talk to us at Auckland Skeptics in the pub who had... Uh, scepticism as one of her um, <laughs> stages of stages belief, of faith, wasn't it? Yes. Stages of faith. Oh yes, yes. the um, yeah. Rainer's friend. Yes. yes. So, yes and no. It's a little bit more complicated than that. So I um, have just been in a, at a meeting in Dunedin. Um, so I will quickly say thank you very much to the Dunedin skeptics for um, for meeting with me and taking me out for dinner. It was great fun, and I got to meet Happy Evil Slosh. Who's lovely. <laughs> you sound surprised. No, I'm not surprised. He's really nice. I was just on to say. So, hello, Josh. And when I was at the meeting, um, a couple of people asked me, uh, would I have dinner with them on the Friday night? And I said, oh, actually, I already have plans. And one of the guys asked, what was I doing? And I said, I was going to meet the skeptics in the pub. And he said, oh, that's kind of interesting. And he asked me a little, you know, to explain a little bit about him. And I, I, what I said was, oh, I'm going to meet some people who sort of are you know, sceptical about sort of alternative health or about, or tend to be atheists and stuff. And he said, ah, oh, that's interesting. I would have thought that scientists would be agnostic. And and then we kind of left at that, really. Uh, well, said, it depends huh. upon what the definition of atheism is. Well, if you're strictly talking about definitions, agnosticism is based on gnosis, the, the Greek word for knowledge. So without knowledge. An agnostic says you can't know anything about a deity, if one existed or not, because it's outside of our space-time. So an agnostic is saying, I don't know. Mm -hmm. An atheist is saying, I don't believe. Yeah. So there, there is subtle difference. So what you would say, most scientists, you would probably classify as atheist agnostics. Or agnostic atheists. Or agnostic atheists. They don't know... And they don't believe. So <clears throat> it is possible possibly to be a believer, a deist or a theist, and an agnostic. I believe in God, but I don't know anything about God. Or you can't know anything about God. How, having said that, of course, the common terminology is an agnostic is someone says, I don't know, or I haven't made up my I'm mind undecided. yet. Yeah. Undecided. Which is a um, slight perversion of the original, oh, original term. You know so much stuff. I, I know everything so about stuff. everything. Um, yeah. I'll tell you where I learned that at... Um, at Young Earth Creationist School. <laughs> in, in apologetics class. At apologetics. Defending the faith. Basically. Oh. So Christians who want to try and come up with the bullshit, so that logical reasons for believing in, in 
their worldview instead of everyone else's worldview. Yeah, so so you can be an atheist and an agnostic. I'm glad you're on our side. <laughs> You've <laughs> come with all the wealth of knowledge. Yeah. Yes. Know thy enemy. Mm. So. What, what does Philip want to know? Does he want to know where we stand on this? What I was thinking is maybe we just go over maybe the reasons that we became an atheist or why you're an atheist. Well, if you really want to know about me and my conversion to atheism, you could probably go back and listen to episode zero. And I talked about being a Christian and becoming an atheist. So that's me, Susie. Um... I grew up in a kind of religious family, I guess, but not that. I mean, we went to church and we were Methodists. Not that I knew what that meant. (laughs) I still don't know what that means. And I was one too. (laughs) I believe they don't drink, but that wasn't what ours did. Yeah, I think think that's the case. um, They, I think, removed that rule from the book. And when I was about 16 was when you start going through the process of um, being confirmed. And that meant having possibly weekly, monthly, I don't know, visits with the... Um, minister to talk about stuff, I guess. Talk about, I don't know, I, I don't know. Anyway, I went to. I, went I remember to, this, and you started asking questions. Yeah, and yeah. I asked lots of questions because at the same time I was doing, I was doing philosophy of religion as one of my subjects and for my A levels, and um, because I'm English and that's what we do, and so I was learning all about these sort of arguments why God didn't exist and various things like that, and I, so I sort of asked him about it and all the things about you know the presence of evil in the world and da 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 and he just he, oh the poor man I kind of feel for him really because he just after a couple of months he just had, he'd sort of you know he couldn't help me anymore and to stop coming and bothering him and that I had to take a leap of faith and if I couldn't take that leap of faith then clearly I wasn't ready to be confirmed and I was like you're absolutely right and so I stopped going to church and I think the really weird thing was that We never talked about it at home. I just stopped going. We never discussed what I I was struggling with and things like that. And it's only been in the last few months when, um, I don't know, I guess I started, I told my mum and dad that I was writing a blog and they were really interested. And I said, okay, but you might find some stuff about me that maybe you, well, that you suspected, but, you know, views that I hold and it was really interesting because they said you know and then I sort of had this discussion with them about the fact that I lost my faith at the age of 16 and we never discussed it and um, and their response was that they're going to go and read my blog and also that perhaps that they didn't believe what I thought they believed so I'm quite looking forward to them coming over for Christmas um, because we may well end up having the discussion we didn't have when I was 16 and talking about what we actually believe and what we don't believe and I, and I guess it just it was because I was doing sciences at school and I was you know becoming a scientist um, I yeah I guess it all kind of for me sort of rolls into one really it's completely part of who I am and how I think about the world and what my job is you could argue it's kind of part of being a scientist as well Scientists, scientism oh scientism <laughs> <laughs> being a scientist leads to scepticism leads to atheism yeah. Which would be the case for sort of 99% of... What's been really interesting, actually, about the move to New Zealand and meeting all of you guys is that I was kind of kind of completely unaware of the scepticism as a, as a movement. You know, I was a scientist. I, you know, have these feelings about alternative health and all these kinds of things, and I never really realised that there was all this stuff going on. And it wasn't until we moved here and we needed to make friends, and then Stephen 
suggested we join skeptics in the pub. But I suddenly realized that there were all these people who, you know, not necessarily scientists who have all this interest. And what's really scary is, it's like the stuff you guys know. And then, and you come up, you know, all, I mean, I'm learning all about these kind of ad hominems and all this. It's like, what is all this bullshit? All this stuff I have no idea about. And yet, you know, it's, it's been, a, it's been a real education. It's, so I think, yes, what I've chosen to become my job naturally lends me to skepticism. I, you know, it's a huge part of who I am, but I didn't actually know it existed as a, as a movement. So yeah, so I'm, and, and I guess I will state now I'm a card waving atheist and I get really annoyed with religious stuff to the point where I would find it very difficult, uh, impossible in fact, to send Evie to a religious school or anything. And I, I fear we're going to end up the other way, where I'm going to end up with a religious child. And actually, the things that other people <laughs> have done, where they send their children to religious schools, and then it ends up being not something at all, you know, and then you you end up with atheist kids. I'm really worried I'm going to, by being so staunch, she's going to rebel against me and become a Christian. Oh, would be Speaking awful. about sending your children to uh, religious schools, Craig. Well, okay, so, so my, I guess my upbringing was that I grew up with... Um, in a sort of a, re- a religious household and uh, we began as Methodists and again like you Susie I had no idea what that actually meant but it does but talking about not not drinking well my my father didn't drink until he was about 35 he never had a sip of alcohol in his life and at, at that point so from what I know of, of my father who died 20 something years ago um, he was he was very much into Bible study in his early life um, and and then, then we moved to a sort of a, an Anglican church, which was a bit, I guess, more more progressive and more liberal. And we were went as a, a family to church every week, and it was like that was just what we did, and, and there was really no getting out of it. There was no sort of choice on our our behalf as children to say whether we wanted to actually go to church. It was something that that you did, and I guess back in the the seventies and eighties when I when I grew up, that was that was what families did they went they went to church and um yeah i guess i really didn't know very much about people who didn't believe and I'd, and i'm and i think probably throughout my teenage years my belief certainly wasn't very strong um and i know that the influences in my family were more my father was more of the believer and in fact um his twin brother my uncle has was a uh a missionary in lisbon um for some time, so he was quite a, <laughs> a strongly religious person. Um, but I guess in my sort of late teens and early twenties, I sort of realised that that I really didn't believe at all, and sort of came out as a, as an atheist at that point. But was exposed to a lot of people who were Christians. Um, one of the people I worked with at the time was was strongly Christian, and, and another workmate I had was a a young Earth creationist, just like you, Nathan, and and. Uh, and when and we used to have discussions about uh, evolution versus creation, and um, yeah, that, that really did sort of pique my interest in the in the whole area. And and I guess I have him to thank for actually improving my knowledge of um, of atheism and, and evolution. It's um, yeah, it's quite interesting. But for me, I think I mean I'm I I would put myself in the same camp as as Richard Richard Dawkins in that. On a scale of one to seven, he's six point nine 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 sure that there is no God, uh, but he. But again, you can't absolutely say that 
I know there is no God because there is no way of knowing that there is no God, but, uh, but I'm pretty damn sure that that's the case. Um, and really due, through a sceptical attitude, to lack of evidence for God. I mean, what, and particularly when you talk about God, what, what God are you talking about? Well, if you're talking about a Christian God of the Bible, then lots of, her, lots of his attributes that, that he has are strongly contradictory. And to me, that, that means that he doesn't exist. I've, I've heard it argued. In fact, I think Victor Stenger in um, a couple of his books brought this up. It can be argued that the God of the Bible doesn't exist because you can logically say that he cannot have these properties and be responsible for the world. So this has just reminded me of something that I haven't thought about for a long time. So the, the church that... So I grew up in South Africa and um, the church that we went to... And I kind of think this is possibly one of the reasons why we were religious is because essentially with no kind of social security and all this kind of stuff, the church is important because this is your community and when things happen, when people's houses are burgled or when people's houses burn down, you know, this is kind of the, these are the people that you turn to for, for places to stay or whatever. So, and I think that was sort of partly, partly why we were, you know, it's like, it's like the community aspect was more important than the religious aspect. But there were, there were a few people at the, so I was involved in the youth club and stuff like that. And, um, we used to go on these kind of youth camp things, and there was lots of singing and stuff, and and it was you know it was it was kind of good fun. But I remember going to one and essentially having a religious experience. So I lost about four hours of the day, and and it was really odd because it just it was like it wasn't scary, and. And there was all this, you know, What do you mean stuff. by a religious experience? Well, what I think somebody would call a religious experience. It might have been a minor stroke. I don't know. Um, so essentially, they're doing all this kind of, you know, there's lots of singing and dancing and everybody's, you know, it's, it wasn't hysteria. It was just sort of like everyone was really happy and singing kind of stuff. Um, I was probably singing quite badly. But anyway, um, maybe that's why I went into a trance. The happy, clappy shoes. <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. Right. Um, but it was sort of for kids. It was for teenagers and stuff. And... All I can, what I can describe it as, is this immense feeling of kind of maybe they were pumping them to the air. I just, I just felt really warm and accepted and loved, and it was really odd. And then, and then I sort of came to, and it was like I'd lost, like I'd been abducted or something. But it was a really, it was a wonderful experience. Well, maybe it was an alien abduction. Maybe, but you know, it was, it was just kind of, it was sort of odd, but like, a, oh, God, it was really. And it's kind of the brain is. But you amazing. don't think it, you don't think it could just be the all the like-minded people around you, sort of feeling warm and happy towards you that made you feel that way. Quite it would have been interesting to stick you in an fMRI and have a look. What's going on in your brain? But, uh, well, if we had a time machine. <laughs> <laughs> that you know, that our brains are capable of doing this to us. And then because we essentially, you know, the way we rationalise it is to say, well, you know, obviously we were either abducted by aliens or, you know, we, we um, you know, we were touched by the hand of God. And it was it was kind of funny because I, I don't... Well, maybe 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 it was that you I'm were in that frame like that. of mind yeah. of belief you, yeah, that actually you gave you that experience. Yeah. And that's possibly what a lot of believers are actually experiencing anyway. Yeah. It was a very nice feeling. And so why wouldn't you be religious now then if you can get that feeling? And all of those things can be done, of course, with um, that guy that's doing stuff with magnets. 
Michael Shermer had uh, had his religious experience by having magnets no, on the side. And of these, are, these aren't your average fridge, fridge magnets. No, <laughs> no, not normal magnets. Um, or with I, hes- I hesitate to say hypnotism, but something along the lines of what Darren Brown does, mm. yeah. where people yeah. will will just go into a trance inverted commas. And then they'll wake up and have inverted commas, no idea what's happened. It's interesting you bring that, that experiment up. If it's the same one you were, that I'm thinking of that you're talking about, I've recently read um, Dr. Richard Wiseman's book that he's recently released called Paranormality, yes. where he describes that experiment. And various people were put into this um, device that had extremely high magnetic fields around their heads and some people experienced religious experiences and some others didn't and one of the people that didn't experience it was Richard Dawkins and and I can't recall now what the actual outcome was but I believe in the end was that they were fooling some of these people and they were telling them that the magnets were turned on when in fact they weren't turned on (laughs) <laughs> so maybe I'll look that up. And that is that is actually I've read the same book, and he was saying that there are some doubts now about that experiment and the way it was run. But that sort of thing—I mean, even the fact that some of those people reported a religious experience, regardless of how it was achieved—I think we can all probably agree that it probably wasn't a deity getting into these people's brains and. Mm. But you can also, I mean, having experienced that feeling, I can kind of understand why people would go back for more. That's, brain's amazing. Brains are amazing. Yes. I think if you're going to worship anything, you should worship the brain. (laughs) Because um, there's certainly nothing in the Bible that would lead me to worship that particular entity. And speaking of the brain and religious experiences... Susie, uh, I know I only just gave you this a couple of minutes ago, but do you want to quickly summarise this article for me? Tell me what they're saying. The Neurology of Bliss, Sacred and Profane. So this is an article from Scientific American about pleasure, I guess. That's a little bit of a confusing article, but anyway. So talking about neuroscience and pleasure. It starts by talking about bliss in terms of orgasm. And so which part of the brain lights up (laughs) (laughs) on a functional MRI when you have an orgasm? And so the surprising things, so essentially what's just happened is somebody has been put in an MRI machine. Quite a few people now have been put in an MRI machine and and masturbated. It seems to be the thing to do these days, doesn't it? So there's been a paper released that they've done this and um, the right side of the brain lights up. And this is surprising because apparently um, pleasure was thought to come from the left side of the brain. So when people have been asked to recall happy memories and things like that, it's the left side of the brain that that activated. Um, It's also the one that's more active in people who don't have depression compared to those who are unhappy. So now suddenly, so if you're happy, the left side of the brain is all bright, but if you're ecstatic you're having an orgasm, then apparently the right side of the brain. Um, and then there's been another bit of research that's just suggested that that it's also the right, that the, maybe the right side is hyperactive in those people who um, are hypersexual. So um, they, you know, and this is, they've sort of put it in terms of people who've had a brain injury that then lead them to, to 
excessive groping, propositioning, masturbating in public, that sort of thing. Yeah. Where are these people? I want to meet them. You want to know where they are? <laughs> They're in the library. Really? Yeah. We get people like that all the time in libraries. You talk to any librarian, they'll be able to get to give you two or three examples of people that are I mental did, and... I had an experience of this, actually, on a... On a hang on, hang on, France. I want to hear some more about this. <laughs> <laughs> are, these, are these normal people, or are they just... Well, oh, obviously just not. They've had a, normal they've had people a... using the library as a hook-up place. No, no, no. Or no. Are they... Actually masturbating in the library. No, not masturbating. I have heard of an example of someone doing that in a supermarket at the magazine rack. <laughs> um, but female. we have had uh, it was a man that one um, it was caught by the security guards <laughs> who were watching the cameras for shoplifters <laughs> did, um, they, did they wait till the crucial moment did oh, I don't know did they let him... <laughs> so that they actually had some um, physical evidence um, this is just something that's quite um, generic to libraries because it's a public place, it's warm during the day and anyone can just wander in any time they like and spend as much time as they want there. But we have had um, and there's one, guy that was caught, one guy that was caught, um, just walked up to a girl wearing a miniskirt and just flicked her skirt up quite at random in the middle of the uh, library. So I presume he was wanted to see the colour of her knickers. I suppose so. Uh, one guy that I personally caught who I um, noticed was acting a bit odd and I was sort of watching him over the balcony and he was literally following a girl around the library. I say girl, a young lady around the library. And um, I managed to sort of swoop down and rescue her and whisk her out the back door and tell him to... Her out the back. So I took her out So I took her into the staff room and then I went and talked to him and told him to... OK, so there's it. perverts everywhere. There are perverts everywhere, but especially in the libraries. But, yeah, uh, we do get some weirdos in the libraries. And then there's the patrons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you want uh, to hear my story about what happened to me? Oh, yes, sorry, sure. your story okay, about what happened to you. Yes, yes. So I was on, my, on, a, on the tube train in, in Paris on my way to the Charles de Gaulle airport. And um, the thing about this train, so it does the it does the underground, I'm not metro, I guess it is in France. Um, it does the it does Paris, and then at some point, um, it then goes on to the airport. So essentially, it's full of people for ages, and then there's a stop where everyone gets off, and then you're you're kind of like the only one. And myself and a friend had been at a conference, and the two of us ended up being the only people on this carriage and but somebody got on and I and he didn't have any bags or anything and I thought he looked a bit dodgy but anyway this was fine so essentially my friend was facing me we were at one end of the carriage and I was then looking out on the rest of the carriage and he was at the other end of the carriage and over the next half an hour he got closer and closer to us and I noticed he was sort of fiddling with himself until he was stood behind my friend with his dick out, masturbating. As we were coming up to... And I didn't say anything because she was a bit... She was she would have completely freaked out. And all I did was... I kind of thought he must... You know, this, this we've got to get past him now. And, and we're um, we're appear, approaching the, the airport thing. I just said to her, I like, hissed, right. Don't look behind you. Grab your bags and we're just going to run. Okay. And I don't know what she thought was happening. But I said, just... just just do as I say and I'll explain when we get off the train. Anyway, so we pull into the station, the train doors open, we grab our bags and we run. And he comes all over the carriage just as we sort of exit oh, it. No. And my friend just turns around and there he is with his, you know, respect <laughs> member in his hand. And it was just like, ah. So I then ran up to, to a, to a, 
um, somebody going, Parlez-vous anglais! <laughs> <laughs> and then tried to explain to these Frenchmen that there was, there was a man who'd been masturbating on the train. And then we got whisked to the police station. And then the policemen thought it was hilarious. They just wanted to know how big it was. And they were all <laughs> making gestures with it. And I was like, anyway. <laughs> so there you go. They thought it was very funny. Anyway, the thing about this article that annoys me the most... Right, is that it's illustrated by a woman. I don't know what, I mean, she's, she's supposed to be looking ecstatic. She's kind of, so there's a woman with her mouth open. And, and her eyes open. And her eyes, she's looking like, ah, and, and possibly she's in front of a fan because her hair is sort of being yeah. blown away. Fair enough. But the study was done on a man. It's a man masturbating. So why, it's, why did we have to have an image of a, she doesn't really even look ecstatic. Um, I don't know. It just because no one wants to watch a man masturbating? No, but we're not watching her. Well, okay. Uh, maybe we aren't seeing her hands. Maybe Can't she see her hands at all. Masturbating. Seems unlikely. They've just chosen a stock image of somebody yeah, who of supposedly looks woman. wonderful. Looks like she's having a good time. And, yeah. Um, it's just... Oh, it's bloody typical. And scientific American. I think they'd know better. Um, moving on. So, have we covered that? Is that everything you wanted to say? Yeah, yeah. Mildly interesting, and again, it's about sex, so... This, this, I think we're going in. to have to put a warning on this podcast. Um... <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought of that. We probably should actually um, give it a rating of, uh, what, PG? 13 More than that. <laughs> particularly, <M. laughs> uh, particularly with Susie's description of the man on the train. Sorry. We can cut all that out if you want. We could have it as no, a... No, leave it But you have to pay for. Yeah. <laughs> 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 pay for a woman content. Just, <laughs> just discussing a man masturbating on the train. Uh, it's so pretty scary, though, actually. In the end, it was like, oh. Uh, he, must have, he must have thought, though, that you weren't objection, objecting to his behaviour, and so that was sort of... permission to do it, yeah. Um, but, you know, it doesn't speak any French. He also looked a bit odd. There you go. We'll leave it. So the next article then is another one for Susie about the new lung cancer vaccine. Cuba announces release of the world's first lung cancer vaccine. I really didn't know anything about this. Cuba, who everyone pretty much knows Cuba because they are really into cigars, right, have apparently released the first therapeutic vaccine for lung cancer. And it's the result of a 25-year research project. And what's interesting about this is it isn't, it isn't a vaccine in terms of the fact that it can, it, you know, it doesn't, it can't prevent something, but apparently um, it can turn aggressive late-stage cancer into a manageable chronic disease by, by, but essentially their thought is by making antibodies, make the body make antibodies that will then um, sort of slow the cancers down. And I just thought that was really interesting. We know that smoking causes cancer. And so here's a very interesting tactic. You know, these countries that are going to lose masses of business by people, you know, not smoking can say, do you know what? We can turn your cancer, you know, have our cigars and have a manageable chronic disease. <laughs> and I just thought that was kind of that was sort of interesting. But now that we sold you all the stuff that gives you lung cancer, then here's the here's um, the thing that's going to manage it for you. That, that's all. I and I I'm, I I've, I did find something else that said it had done it had gone through quite um, phase two, and I haven't found anything about phase three and stuff. But um, so phase three is the very final one before you essentially go for go to. So it's almost finished, is what you're saying. Yeah, it's very, very close yeah. to being. Yeah. So the really big important question, of course, is what are the anti-vaxxers saying? <laughs> yes. 
How are they uh, reacting to the news? Well, they might be okay because this will, this will, this is obviously going to be given to patients. Presumably I haven't seen anything that's about about giving. You know, this is not about giving this to people to prevent cancer. No, this is giving no. it to people with cancer as essentially as another form of therapy. Yeah. Um, so they might be okay for it because you know you're not you're not trying to kill their kids with it. Um, um, so is it just for the layperson over here? Is it technically a vaccine? Is, well, uh, my assumption was that a vaccine was something you give a child to prevent something in the future. Is it not that simple? Well, it's something that produces well, antibodies. Yeah, it's something that makes your immune response recognise something in particular and respond to it. And that's what, that's, that's what they're doing. They're, they're making the, the um, body make antibodies against the cancer cells. So, yes, technically this is a vaccine. But it just doesn't quite work in the way that we would... Expect it to work. Fantastic. Traditionally, say a vaccine would work. Um, I just thought it was interesting, and I might have to do a bit more reading about that. Good on you, Cuba. So, smoke them if you've got them, chaps. <laughs> the uh, completely unnecessary skeptical podcast does not endorse the taking up of smoking, <laughs> even though there's now a vaccine. <laughs> so, the next item is Craig. You've discovered a new miracle cure. Well, no, I haven't. Coenzyme Q10. Tell us about it. Right, okay. So so what, what prompted this is that we somehow got an email from L. Sears, MD, saying, Dear Third Ager. <laughs> and apparently the Third Age is now what they call old people. Oh, is that what it's all about? Yes, oh. yes, yes, yes. You're in your middle age and then you're in your Third, third Age. I see what you did there. So anyway... Um, so he says there's a new form of CoQ10 and it may be the most critical discovery since Carl Falkers first identified CoQ10 back in 1958, which he in fact did with the research that I've done on it. Anyway, CoQ10 is coenzyme Q10 and I'm not a... Uh, I have no idea about this stuff. Anyway, apparently it's an enzyme that is um, active in... Uh, in the ATP process inside cells for um, using up energy in cells. And so there are um, people who are deficient in CoQ10, which uh, they can then take some supplement which fixes their deficiency. And, and, and so it's, it is used to treat some illnesses and stuff. This is a genuine thing. This is a genuine thing. However, obviously, the, the, the anti-aging people and bodybuilders have jumped onto this um, this thing to say, well, okay, if it, if it if it's good for people who uh, who need it because they're deficient in it, then obviously taking it is going to make <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. So I did a little research into this and and read up about it, and it's a hugely complex stuff about how it works and so on. Um, back in 1958, the guy earned a Nobel Prize for his discovery and so on. So it is, it is, it's not bogus, but using it for anti-aging may well be. And the fact that um, the fact that it's bodybuilders who are promoting it and, and so on t seems to me to be more likely that it's bogus. Having done some research into it, though, there are a, there is a sales um, website in New Zealand run by John da -da -da. Appleton of the Ponsonby News. So it's therefore bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Poisoning the well, huge, logical fallacy. There's a fallacy. huge amount of papers on PubMed. Um, so there's a huge amount of stuff being done with with um, yep. this thing. 
a lot of it is in treatment of disease and stuff um, because it's an antioxidant. So there have been all sorts of things um, which it's been used for. The thing I don't like about the um, article that, that, that the story is based on is that... Um, I mean, they've just got they've got graphs that show you that. So this this guy has made up his own formulation of this stuff, and in fact, he's made up a new formulation of it that's eight times better. And and in fact, it. can slow the aging process by up to fifty one percent. I mean, it's just what's really annoying is, and he keeps talking about um, all the data they have. Um, he doesn't have any error bars on his graphs. Not that his graphs are anything or or anything. They're, I mean, they're they, they're. Um, Based on questionnaires of people, that's that's apparently a really good way of telling how well those people are, and they're people in nursing homes, um, and their their scores went up after taking his supplement. But he's got no error bars, and that really irritates me. Um, and then he talks about stuff in mice that, or mice or rats, um, that. Oh, and the one thing I liked in the email, the the it says it's not a theory or hopeful speculation; it's a done deal. Yeah, but <laughs> so they, so they're all of this. Um, so they describe three groups of mice and how they aged. One group was given the new high-powered form of CoQ10, the second conventional Q10, the third no Q10 at all. The mice were all the same age and allowed to age normally. After several months, the mice taking no Q10 died of natural causes. They showed typical signs of aging and oxidative stress. The second group taking conventional CoQ10 was still alive but showed signs of aging. They lasted longer, but when they died, they had the similar conditions to the first group. The third group, which took the high-powered form, were not just still alive. They looked like strong young mice. They were running around in their cages with all the vigour of mice half their age. Where is it? I, he won't tell me where this, where this is from. You know, just, uh, I want to see this data. I want to know where you've published it. Um, it. They just say, it works, and then... And it's then all about sales to old people. Yeah, essentially. What is also quite funny, so they make some claims. Um, um, he, so he talks about the fact that it's an antioxidant. Um, so he says, the slow burn we use for fuel damages tissues like fire burns everything it contacts. What this means, I'm not quite sure. The action of CoQ10's antioxidant power puts out this fire and protects your organs and tissues from damage. And then there's a little asterisk. Aside from giving your heart and brain the extra fuel it needs to keep working, it preserves them and keeps them in working order for much longer. Asterisks. And then if you go down to the bottom, it says... Oh, there's more asterisks all over the place. Then it says... These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any disease. <laughs> it's like, well, well aging isn't a disease per se, is it? No, but anyway, oh, what a load. Oh, there it is. So there's the claims there. The ultimate out. Much research has been conducted. Well, there's huge amounts of stuff on PubMed, but it's... Um, how good that doesn't necessarily mean... That doesn't translate into that it's good for you to take as a supplement and, and a normal healthy person is going to make you live longer. And it's a tricky thing because you can't split somebody in half and say, <laughs> what would you have been like if you'd not taken it or what would you be like if you had taken it? Seems pretty dodgy. They like that molecule, don't they? I keep seeing that everywhere all over the page. This is what the molecule looks like. Just because it looks cool or something. Makes it look, I don't know. Sciencey. Something yeah. Okay, so that's coenzyme Q10. Has valid uses, but don't take it unless it's been assigned to you by a real doctor, I suppose. Is that the I, d I don't know. I'm kind of... I mean, it, 
It's Don't listen things. to John Appleton. It anyway. has all the signs, all the warning signs of quackery. Whether it really is quackery is kind of open to debate, but the yeah. way they speak about it. In fact, it's probably worth reading his um, his page because it yeah it just sounds sounds like bullshit. There's a there's a page for articles. CoQ10.co.nz. We'll put a link up. Okay, so we've said everything we want to say about coenzyme Q10. Uh, next item on the agenda is DNA sequencing. Craig, and you had some questions. Well, I was going to ask Susie <laughs> some questions, really actually. About this. <laughs> Put her on the spot. <coughs> Defend your science, Susie. So, 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 so DNA sequencing DNA is about sequencing. how they take some DNA and then they figure out what the sequence of the, the bases are. So yep. the A's and G's and T's and C's. Yeah. And so th- from what I understand about how they do this is they take some DNA and they chop it up into little bits. And the reason they chop it up into little bits is because the technology isn't there yet that allows them to process the whole strand of DNA in one long bit and read off the bases. I'll stop you there okay. because essentially there's two forms of sequencing. So there's Sanger sequencing, which is the original sequencing done by Fred Sanger. Uh, yeah, I think that's right, yes. Yeah. Um, and then there's next generation sequencing. Now, Sanger sequencing does big, does long reads. And but it's slow. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a different way of doing things. And it's the next generation sequencing that do small bits. It's a very different technology. But they do small bits in parallel. So they, they chop it all up. Oh, the really annoying thing is I went to a... a bioinformatics meeting in Queenstown about two weeks ago and I've had seminars on this stuff. Maybe I should go find my book. So one thing I will say is that there are there are a number of different companies now doing this next generation sequencing and they kind of do it in different ways. So the reason they're doing this is because there's this X Prize which is going to give $10 million to the first team of people who can sequence a hundred genomes from a hundred-year-old people, centenarians, in ten days uh, okay. for under ten thousand dollars. So this is this is will issue in an era of personalised medicine, where you can go to the doctor and you can say, "Here's my here's my own DNA," and they'll be able to somehow analyse that to say, "Okay, well these are the drugs that we should give you because we know from the analysis of your DNA that these work on you." This is something that when the first, when the human genome was sequenced, whatever it was, back ten years yeah, ago, yeah, ten years ago, yeah. and there really was the feeling that once we had the sequence, we would kind of solve everything. And then, of course, it turns out to be a lot more complicated than that. But there are Damn. certainly cases <laughs> where knowing whether somebody um, has particular variations in some gene or something will mean that, that a particular treatment would work for them or not is certainly true. And and absolutely, you can see that maybe this is the way that medicine's going to go in 10, 20 years' time. I mean, as a scientist, we use this kind of stuff all the time, so it's fantastic, the fact that it's got, you know, we the, being a microbiologist, we can now um, sequence the genome of a microbe in... I don't know, four hours or something? I mean, it's pretty cool, really. But then, which I guess is what your question is, you have all these little bits and then you've got to put them all back together. Yeah, so how, how do they know How do they know what sequence they go back together in? So it's all, well, it's all computation. So it's all about computers. And, it, and it's all about the coverage that you have of every bit. And you don't, and you will have longer, they'll have longer and shorter bits. 
So this is like dendrochronology with the tree rings and matching up the overlaps yeah. in seasons. Yeah, and you in want, order to and get you want, a, like a, you want, you know, you want as many. Right, so they're not all they're not all exactly the same length. Absolutely. Right, right. And they'll they'll all be of different bits, so they stagger along. And then when you look at this information on a computer program, you know, you see all these things. So statistically they can match them up yeah. into the, the original sequence. Yeah. Right. That makes <laughs> that makes sense. Right. But but from the description that I read and what, what I was picturing in my mind was that they had some way of chopping them all up into these exactly the same Uniform length bits of DNA that they that they would then maybe it's my fundamental misunderstanding no, no, of what not. exactly they're getting when they take a swab of DNA like they do on CSI. Um, so the problem, the point is that there are different ways of doing this, and one of them did talk about the fact that he, you end up with small, exactly the same length. What did he call that? I saw a very good video demonstrating the technique on I think Wired magazine's site. Um, that was produced by one of the companies that manufactures one of these machines for sequencing DNA, and it was quite quite interesting the way they do it, and that and that they've got the this special membrane that attaches, and they they put fluorescent markers on the ends of the DNA, and they put a wash of a solution through, which then binds to um, the, a particular base, and then. Um, so that fluoresces when that base is there. They use a digital camera to take that shot, and then they can analyse it for. And then essentially, it builds up. It, it builds up because the DNA is sitting on its end, or the strand is sitting on its end, and it builds up and up and up. And they put a wash through, and then they're by analysing the things that fluoresce, the flashes and the in the shots, they can then read off the, so the, the bases. There's another one called ion torrent, which does it by looking at changes in pH. And by looking at changing pH, it knows what base has been has been added. I mean, it's all pretty cool. They all work slightly differently. The the um, and I'm still trying to get my head around the whole thing. Essentially, what sequencing seems to do, you know, you you have your genome and you chop it up and then you reassemble it. And he had this beautiful analogy of cars in a parking lot, and you take, you know, you shove them all in the crusher, so they're all really tiny bits, and then you try and figure out what the hell was there. And he had another, so the, and that's essentially the kind of sequencing we're supposed to do. And then he, and then he talked about a different one called um, tag sequencing, where you end up with a very small bit. So you take, you have your, you have your bit of DNA, but then you end up with a really small bit. And I, uh, I need to do some more reading because I still don't quite figure out how you get from that, why this is not the same as the other bit. Well, and and the technique that that prompted. The art, there was an article in the Herald about this that um, it was Dr. Marcus Wilson, who is a blogger on Cyblogs yes, they've taken in New Zealand, um, and talked about this new technique where they have a, a sheet of graphene, which is the, the carbon atoms one atom thick, and then they're forcing um, the strand of DNA through a little hole in this graphene sheet. And by doing that, they can then read off the bases according because each of each of the individual bases is a different size like, like the tupperware toy where you put the different shapes in the ball good analogy uh, putting yeah, the different so shape blocks through the right, different holes right. yeah yeah anyway okay well that that's that's interesting thank you for helping me understand how they put all the bits back together well no doubt you've had to simplify that a great deal so that we can understand it so there's probably no point anyone writing us and say look you got it wrong because well, Susie uh, has submitted, she doesn't understand it all herself anyway. Well, no, I don't. And and what's really scary is I'm, I'm trying to understand this because we've just sequenced this genome of one of the bugs that I'm working on. <laughs> it's like, oh.
and I'm dealing with loads of bioinformaticists who who are kind of just who are talking a language I don't understand. It's something I'm now having to get involved in, and I'm trying to learn it on top of everything else that I. And my, what seems to be happening to me is that once you put some information in, some other stuff comes out the other ear. So yeah. it happens to, to me too. a whole load of stuff to put yeah. this thing in. You need some CoQ10, and that'll help you. <laughs> anyway, um, moving on to Woo Zealand, and there's only one thing in Woo Zealand this morning that I couldn't give a rat's ass about, but Susie and Craig really wanted to talk about. So here it is, chaps, the rugby. So this is just an article. Um, <sighs> And the New Zealand Herald called Lies, Damn Lies and Statistics for the World Cup. So um, we had a very nice opening ceremony. We had great fireworks display. It was, it, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm not so, you know, I'm actually quite enjoying it. I couldn't actually. give a rat's ass about the rugby, but the, the, the opening ceremony was quite impressive and the fireworks were very, very nice. Um, but there's been a lot of problems about uh, the number of people who came down to the waterfront in Auckland to be part of Party Central. Um, so official estimates are 150 to 200,000 revellers for opening night. The, um, these numbers have been dismissed by a statistician who calculated that it was physically impossible to fit that number in the downtown entertainment areas. And he's estimated a maximum of 70,000 revellers. He's based it on looking at aerial photographs. His figure doesn't include a couple of the places, so it doesn't include Britomart or the, or, yeah, I can never say this one, Wyndham, Wyndham, Wyndham Quarter. Wyndham Quarter, isn't it? Isn't that the Wynyard no, Quarter? Oh, yeah, anyway, he has said he first counted the number of people per square metre, which he found was 1.7, and then calculated the area and then essentially multiplied together to get the 70,000. I was there. I mean, I was, in fact, I was there at the time he said he did his count, and it got a lot busier after I left because I was there with Evie and Stephen and it was just getting a bit silly. 1.7 people per square metre was not how many people there were there. I mean, we could, you know, you couldn't move. It was really busy. And 1.7 people per square metre would mean we could, you know, we would have plenty of space around each other. So I wonder yeah. whether he's well, 1. made 7 some... Well, 1.7 people per square metre doesn't sound like you're packed in like sardines. No, which we were. They should have the, the, maybe... Maybe they should have looked on the the trains. <laughs> the trains going the trains, to. On the other hand. Um, so I just I wonder how he came up with this and whether there's been some slight error. Maybe it's an error in reporting. Maybe he didn't actually say 1.7. Maybe he said 17. That would be absurd. That would be 17 impossible. people in one square meter. <laughs> well, that's what he's arguing, isn't it? He's saying that it's impossible to have that number of people. Maybe it was a square foot. Anyway. What's interesting about this man is that he... Oh, it doesn't actually say in this... In the article in the actual Herald, um, he he's a statistician for a company, or a, he has a company um, who do who offers stats and modelling for various things, including hedge funds. And he's been in the news before, so he, so he's he's good at... You know, whenever so, for instance, when farmers did their Santa parade, he came up with a aha. There have not been that many people in the thing, so he's he's good at every time that. And I kind I kind of wonder, is he doing it for the advertising, or does he actually Most genuinely like. believe that that their numbers are wrong? Because you know, if you say that they're wrong by this much, you know, this is going to get you in the paper. And I just I was there, and I don't think 1.7 people per square meter is, is correct, because I felt like I was being hemmed in. So. 
Um, that's so, all we're going to say about the rugby. So if there were three people per square metre, then the numbers are probably right. Well, that was fascinating. Australia got um, thrashed by Ireland. That was a great game. I really enjoyed that game. <laughs> I was on the edge of my seat going, go Ireland, go Ireland. This is, this is even less interesting than talking about <laughs> shoes. <laughs> so who do you think is going to be in the final, Susie? I have no idea. <laughs> that's it. That was all we had for New Zealand because apparently nothing else has happened in New Zealand over the well, last month, except like for rugby. Because the rugby is taking over everything. So, really quickly, Susie, do you want to have a rant about the Ponsonby News? Oh, I will. Um, I'm going to ask, first of all, I would like, um, if anybody can come up with a name, an alternative name that I could use for the Ponsonby News in my blogging and stuff, I'd really like it. Um, I'm kind of just been trying to think of something. And, and my What, to disguise it or...? No, just to, uh, um, a name for the Ponsby News that I can refer to it that sort of, because it's not, it's a bit like, you know, the Vaccination Informa- Information Network, which is actually the Vaccination Misinformation Network. I want something like that, that kind of can explain the Ponsby News, because it's, it's like news. It's, um, it's not news. It's not news, it's, it's uh, but I can't quite think of the word. Yeah, Ponsby pom- pom- Propaganda. Hmm. So there's a little competition there for anyone that can come up with a cool name for Susie, and there might be a book in it for you or something. We'll figure something out. Okay, so this month, um, just a very brief update on the John Appleton and the bioidentical hormones. You'll remember last month that he wrote to me, so he both wrote to me personally, sent me some things, and then also put my letter on his page um, saying why I was wrong, and he stood by all his stuff. Um, so two things from that. There, there have been two letters to the editor this month praising John Appleton for standing up against the medical establishment. Go, John. So there you go. That's all I'll say. Um, the other thing was, I can't remember whether I mentioned... So he gave this um, paper that was his um, evidence that I said we ha- I had an access because it cost $30. Thank you, Philip, for offering the $30. But um, what I did was, after John had made contact with me, I said, could you, do you, if you have this paper, which I'm assuming you have, because you've quoted it at me, could you send it to me? And he sent me the PDF. I haven't quite got around to critiquing the paper yet, but all I will say, so it's in, it's not in a particularly good journal, and they do have a section at the end um, for a declaration of any conflicts of interest. And interestingly, the doctor who wrote the paper declared no conflict of interest. It says, I declare no conflicts of interest. And this is very interesting because he runs, is the owner of a clinic in America that sells bioidentical hormones. Now, I couldn't oh be clear. I mean, it bears his name. It's the Holtorf Medical Medical Group. So I couldn't be, couldn't be sure that he, you know, this paper was from like 2009. Anyway, so via a rather circuitous route, for which I have to thank Rebecca Watson, um, we, we made contact with this company, or this, this medical group, and um, they got in touch because I just sort of pretended I was after, you know, so I'm doing some research on, on this. Um, and so it turns out that they've been offering bioidentical hormones for 10 years. So there has definitely been a conflict of interest. And I'm kind of now tossing up whether I'm going to write to the journal and just make them aware of this conflict of interest that I think should be flagged on this paper. Well, we'll just sit Philip on them. <coughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm not going to mention John Appleton this month. Which you've just done like seven times. But we've already mentioned him in the podcast anyway. No, but I mean, I'm not going to talk about what he's talking about this right. month. I have something even better. I feel they have really excelled themselves this month with the Ponsonby News. Just you wait. 
So in the um, Ponsby People and Their Pets section, there's an article, Is Your Dog As Healthy As You? And it's from a lady who um, has a giant schnauzer who suffered... <laughs> Why does that sound rude? <laughs> she has a dog. Oh, a dog, right. A dog who is a giant schnauzer who suffered for the past seven years from constant infections, inflamed skin and all kinds of immunity issues after being diagnosed as hypothyroid. Hypothyroid. Um, I'm, I'm just going to... I'm going to read some of this to you because it's just it's quite cool. Um... As I had just completed four liver gallbladder, gallbladder cleansers to rid myself of hundreds of gallstones that I never realized <laughs> I had, yep. and convinced that the liver is the fundamental issue in all health disorders, I felt compelled to apply this incredible health regime to Strauss. So I pondered how to administer five days of apple juice followed by a day of Epsom salts and olive oil on a dog. I decided to contact the man who wrote the book, The Liver and Gallbladder Miracle Cleanse, for guidance. I posted a note on his Facebook page, and to my amazement, he responded. He said he couldn't see how it was feasible, but suggested that I try MMS, a miracle mineral supplement that detoxifies the body and is also able to rid the body of bacteria and even viruses. Da-da-da-da-da. I gingerly tried it at first and put a few drops in his water each day. He excreted days of black tar and went on to gain energy and vitality on a daily basis. The liver is the root of all well-being and disorder. We need to apply the same principles of health to our furry friends. It's a miracle. No, no, no. Right. What? Okay. So I have two. So for anyone who doesn't know what Miracle Mineral Solution is, it's essentially bleach. Um, I have two points to make about this. So this is written by Deborah Kelland, and I recognize this name because, of course, I scour the Ponsipi News every month. She is a real estate agent. So a real estate agent has written a... Um, an article, and it's next to the vets, the vets one, because they have a vet who writes, um, who writes, who answers people's questions. She's written next to the vet, feed your dog or your family with bleach, and it'll make them feel better. Of course, I have written a letter explaining what Miracle Mineral Solution is, whether they publish it again, who knows. What I've also done is I've emailed the vet whose column appears next to her, saying, are you aware that this woman is treating her dog with bleach? you might want to comment. And I've also contacted the New Zealand Vets Association to see what they want to comment. So we'll see how that goes. Um, but I think the saddest thing is that she had questions about her animal's health and she went to a snake oil salesman on Facebook rather than contacting her vet. And I just think that is very sad. And, you know, it almost, it almost made me um, kind of laugh because one of the, the very first letter I ever wrote to the Ponsby News was related to this Ponsby people and their pet section where they had put a whole load of stuff that you can do with your pet, including kind of homeopathy and pet psychics and all this kind of stuff. And I had said, you know, that I'd explained what homeopathy was. And reading this article, it almost kind of made me think, well, you know, I'd rather you were treating that with homeopathy because at least you're not, you know, at least you're not poisoning it with bleach, you know. And you're lucky that you only had five days of of diarrhea and black tar. If she just put a few drops in the dog's water, that to me sounds implausible. That there would be anything, uh, yeah. be anything like the the concentration required in order to have that effect on the animal. What got me about that statement was you gave your dog a, a, an unknown substance and the dog exhibited strange symptoms, i.e. changes in his stool, and you thought, oh, well, that's working, that's, that's awesome, yeah. and not taking it to a professional. Oh, 
just so I really do feel like they've excelled themselves this month. So they have a new they have a new health correspondent who's an estate agent. Fantastic. Thank you, Susie. So we've now got an interview with Martin Bridgestock that we recorded at the conference. New Zealand we're conference. play that now. So we're here at the New Zealand Skeptics Conference and we're interviewing the Martin Bridgestock. Martin, welcome to the cusp. Thank you very much, Nathan. Nice to be here. It is, isn't it? It's a little bit cold, but apart from that, yes, it's quite nice. And the fact we're sitting in a chapel is also a little disconcerting, but I don't <laughs> think any of us are going to object too much. Well, if uh, God really objects, he can strike us down. Hey, don't invite him. <laughs> <laughs> Just for those people in our uh, listeners who may not know who you are for some strange reason. Could there be such a person? I, I'm I'm sorry. There, there's probably a person. So right, um, you could you person. give us a really brief, where did you come from, how did you come into scepticism, and what, are you, what is it that you do? Sure, my name's Martin Bridgestock, Dr. Martin Bridgestock, if you want to be uh, pernickety. I'm a senior lecturer in science, technology and society in the School of Biomolecular and Physical Sciences at Griffith University, which is in Brisbane, Queensland. I was exposed, f um, I'm British by birth, as my accent shows, I came out to Australia when I was 29 years old. Uh, I was exposed first to scepticism when I was about 12. I picked up Martin Gardner's Fads and Fallacies in the Name of Science uh, secondhand on a market bookstall and read it, and the idea stayed with me. But I wasn't strongly involved in scepticism until the 1980s. And in the 1980s, um, creationism in Queensland became very, very powerful. We had a fundamentalist premier, a fundamentalist leader of the opposition, and a fundamentalist uh, minister of education. There was a great, very powerful push indeed to force creationism into the Queensland science syllabus. And by creationism, I don't mean some vague ideas. I mean the idea that the Earth's 10,000 years old. It was created in six days. Noah's flood laid down all the fossils. The Tower of Babel dispersed humanity into its various uh, r racial and religious groups. That was to be taught as though it was science in the Queensland science syllabus to, to children at state schools. And what I did then was something very simple. Once I got to realise about this, I had two children at that time at primary schools in Queensland. And I did something which was very simple. I uh, read a few of these creationist magazines, and I was very impressed by the fact that they quoted science. You've got references to major scientists and what they'd said and written. You've got references to major journals such as Science and Nature and so on. And if you simply read these magazines, it gives you the impression that there's this tidal wave of evidence which is going to sweep away godless evolution, and then creation will emerge as the new scientific uh, theory. And I looked at these and I was really quite impressed. It does look impressive if you just read them. And then after a few weeks, I'm a slow thinker, I, uh, I thought, well, perhaps I ought to check them. So I took the magazines down to the Griffith University Library and also across the city to the University of Queensland Library, and I started to check the references. And what I found was that the references were a tower of stinking falsehood. Quotes were changed, major scientists were misquoted, sometimes they were ripped from context so that their significance was completely distorted. Indeed, I found that 90% of the references uh, to science in the creationist literature were false in one way or another. And the other 10%, just to be complete, were non-contentious references. There were things that didn't um, carry much uh, weight one way or the other. So, on the basis of a stinking mass of corrupt dishonesty, 
creationism was going to, a particular sort of religion was going to be forced into the Queensland State Schools science classrooms. At that moment, I became very angry indeed, and I decided something has to be done about this. So the, my first step was to write a whole set of papers for various uh, Australian journals, such as the Queensland Science Teachers Journal, the uh, Australian Science Teachers Journal, spelling out what I'd found, that this material was simply not reliable. And I also ran head-to-head -head with one of the most prominent creationists. I'd never been on radio in my life before, and I, ran, I had a one-hour debate with him, and he was so shaken by what I'd said, he didn't admit it at the time, he would never meet me in debate again. No Australian <laughs> creationist has ever met me in debate after that first time. Um, and the only people I found who were prepared to take a really firm stand and come out over the tr into the trenches with me on this matter was the Australian sceptics, who were a, a fledgling little group who gave tremendous support. And they risked about half their annual budget uh, for a book that Dr. Ken Smith, who was a mathematician, and I edited. And the book went through six editions. And as a part of the research for the book, we found that the creation scientists in Queensland had invested a lot of the money that they got from donations into a shonky investment scheme. And the money had gone overseas and disappeared. And we were able to blow this on statewide television. And we cut the Creation Science Foundation off from the world for three days because all their supporters were phoning in demanding to know where the money was. And because of that financial scandal, the Minister of Education backed off. We made it so unpleasant that the government didn't want anything further to do with it and we were able to win the battle. So that, that's my background. <laughs> awesome. What I was specifically wanting to ask you about was your last book. You had a chapter about ethics and scepticism, uh, which I found particularly interesting. Could you summarise that for us and, uh, and then we'll ask you some questions? Yes, certainly. Well, I started off in that chapter in the book with the ideas of W.K. Clifford, who was a 19th century British mathematician and philosopher. He died, actually, at the age of 34. And he wrote a paper called The Ethics of Belief. And what he argued, without going into great detail, is that, first of all, if you believe upon insufficient evidence, then there is a danger that there will be disastrous outcomes. For example, if you, if you have a sick child and you believe that child can be cured by homeopathy, you're putting that child in terrible danger. And there have been dreadful cases of that, both in Australia and New Zealand. That's one argument. The second argument is that if we allow ourselves to believe on insufficient evidence, then in fact we're corrupting ourselves. We're making ourselves less, more gullible, less able to tell truth from falsehood. And Therefore, he says, we should always uh, refrain from believing on inadequate evidence. It's an ethical imperative. Now, w if you translate that over to scepticism and the paranormal, well, the paranormal, by definition, is not adequately supported by evidence. And therefore, scepticism is an ethical imperative. You must believe on the basis of the evidence, because otherwise there can be disastrous results. So, so that's the core of the argument, that it may well be unethical to believe the paranormal. And the, um, as you were just saying before, the converse of that, that there's sort of an ethical imperative to be sceptical of things and yes. to possibly intervene where necessary. Yes, that, that's am right. I, am I misinterpreting that? No, no, you're getting it dead right. Uh, I'm not quite that rigid because uh, I don't think that any of us is actually a belief machine when we go about all the time thinking, hmm, what's the evidence for this? Hmm, what's the evidence for that? And so on. Uh, but I do think that where important matters are concerned, such as the health and illness of people and things like that, and particularly of children who we're responsible for, then I do believe that, in fact, we have an ethical responsibility to give those children the best diagnosis and the best treatment we possibly can. So at 
times the ethical imperative does become quite overwhelming. I mean, if somebody wants to believe in um, King Tut's curse or the Loch Ness Monster or something like that, I'm less concerned about it because it seems there's less of a direct consequence. But uh, for, for things which are important, which concern human welfare, I'm very much in favour of applying an ethical imperative, yes. Hmm. Okay, so to take your, your example of homeopathy and, and belief in homeopathy and its power to kill, uh, to, to um, cure a child's illness, uh, where do you see the burden of responsibility for that eth um, ethical decision lies? Is it is it on the parent to only choose things that uh, for the child that actually have some evidence for them, or should it be in the people that are actually marketing these products and and not even put presenting them to for sale if there is not evidence. My view is that there's an ethical responsibility on both. That if uh, merchants, that is people in pharmacists or um, pharmaceutical companies of various kinds, uh, market a uh, a product which they know perfectly well does not work and has no evidence to support it, then they're behaving immorally. And also, I think that parents with a sick child who use only those kind of products are indeed behaving immorally as well. In fact, they're behaving criminally. There was a case a couple of years ago in Australia where a couple were actually sentenced to jail because they treated their uh, sick child only with homeopathic remedies and the child died. But I guess one of the problems is that it seems that your average punter on the street does not actually realise that something like homeopathy has no active ingredient. And most of them, they don't, they don't realise that. And it seems that, I mean, what you'd almost want, if they have to be sold at all, is quite like a little stand next to it, that, you know, a sticker you could, pharmacists could put down that said, you know, there is no active ingredient in this thing or, or something. I mean, it seems to me that relying on the marketeers to regulate themselves is... <laughs> never works. And ah, Susie, you've changed the argument here because what I was talking about before was ethical responsibility. Now you're talking about practicalities, which is <laughs> fundamentally different. <laughs> I agree with you, and that, you tried to catch me then, didn't you? I agree with you, and that's fundamentally right. And therefore, of course, what we do is we have to regulate the market, as we always do in these cases. Personally, I would be in favour of putting on all these products uh, a sticker which says something like, there is absolutely no evidence to show that this works. Because if you can do it on packets of cigarettes that I don't see why you can't do it on. Yeah. So your talk that you did today, it was quite interesting, I thought. Thank you. That was very was interesting. Very interesting. Thank, Thank you very even interesting. more. <laughs> don't want to get a big head. What Shall I summarise it? Okay. Uh, well, uh, Queensland for many years has been associated with, shall we say, a great interest in the paranormal. Thanks to that New Zealand emigrant, Joby Elke-Peterson, yeah. who came <laughs> and uh, um, became the effective dictator of the state for about 19 years. And one of the things that he fostered was creation science. And it was claimed by his fundamentalist education minister that there was enormous support in Queensland for creation science, rather as there is in the United States. And so Kylie Sturgis and I um, persuaded the Australian Science and S Australian Skeptic Science and Education Foundation to fund a survey of paranormal belief in Queensland, which bless them they did. And as a result, we found that in fact um, creation science has only minority support in Queensland. About 62% believe evolution, 38% believe in creation science, which is a substantial minority, but it is a definite minority. And therefore, they don't have a claim that this should be pushed into the uh, into the science syllabus, which is what they are trying to do. And, and so that was the key result that we got from it. We've, we've finally disproved this claim that Queensland is so different from the rest of Australia. It isn't. That was totally worth $30,000.
I think so, yes. <laughs> well, I, think I mean, it was a wonderful you, you say this, the survey was done quite a few years ago now, wasn't 2008, it? 2008, yes. Yeah, and you're still mining the, yes. the, the data that you got back. It sounds yes. like there's been, you know, quite a lot of stuff. Yes, there has. Which was going to be my next question, is you actually answered, asked a few questions. Yes. Did you say in the end? Um, a total of 20, 20 yes. 20 questions, uh, which, well, of course, enables you to do more in advanced analysis as well. So can you tell us about some of the other interesting results? Well, yes, certainly. Right? One of the, the big ones which we've done, which has gone into a, a very prestigious journal early this year, was that Professor Rich, which Richard Wiseman, who's a very good British sceptical psychologist, had put forward two scales of superstition. One was a scale of positive superstitions, which are designed to enhance your position in the world, and the other one were negative superstitions, which were designed to protect you from harm. And these scales have been used quite a lot in the psychological literature. They're, they're only six questions. They've been put in in various questionnaires. People are using them more and more. We put them in our questionnaire and we subjected them to quite a rigorous analysis to see whether they do in fact form two different scales. And they don't. They don't work like that at all. Is the difference that they don't work on the people that are selected for the tests rather than perhaps, I mean, is Richard Wiseman using them in on psychology students or undergraduates or something? Is that who he... Maybe they just don't work on Queenslanders. Well, in fact, our doubt came because some researchers at Manchester, at Manchester Metropolitan University had used them on a sample of students there and they thought that they didn't work and so they began, uh, Dagnall, Parker and Munley were the three researchers several years ago and they began to express a little bit of concern and so we thought, well, let's try them not on just on a group of students, let's try them on an actual cross-section of a population, which was the, a cross-section of the Queensland population, and we can confirm that they do not work and they should not be used in the way that Wiseman advocates. Um, it sounds like a minor result, and it's a negative result, but it also shows that a number of researchers have been misled by, those, by, by the claims that these are so two scales. So how has your finding been received? You know, received? So far, with a thunderous silence. I mean, academics are not going to get outraged by this and start throwing cowpats and things around. The, the, the criticism and the testing is absolutely a normal part of, of, of academic research. And therefore, I hope what will happen is that uh, the Wiseman scales will not be used anymore, as though they were scales of, of Was he given a, an opportunity to write a little... No, but he can have that. Um, he can certainly double test them. If, if he's got any problems about it, that's fine. He'll be able to do that. And if he can that his scales work, that's fine. We used um, not a, we used actually several different sorts of analysis. We used factor analysis, and we also used a very complex technique called rash analysis, which is a scaling technique. And pretty conclusively, we've shown those scales don't work, so they really should not be used. So it's a, it's a kind of criticism that goes on in science all the time. It's not exciting, but it is important. It's about but again, refining again, the standard again, another science. fantastic example of how having a statistic thrown at you made you come up with a scientific way of testing it and in the in and in you know as a side product of that have essentially advanced you know some some other aspect of, of science or psychology. Yes. I think that's fantastic. Well, that, that's what research is about and what research should be about. You can't tie your ego to a particular theory because, of course, that theory might try to be wrong. And both in scepticism and in science, there has to be that level of humility. You have to say, well, I've, I think this is so, but I could be wrong. Let's see what the evidence says. It's what both science and scepticism are essentially about, in my view. Yes, although I sometimes, I, as a scientist, I get frustrated by the number of scientists I meet who seem not to share that view. 
Well, there's some interesting research on this by a sociologist of science called Ian Mitroff. What he found was that very highly regarded scientists do have passionate beliefs which they argue for very strongly. Um, and in a sense, that, that's true. Scientists have to be fantastically committed to the work they're doing. They also have to believe that certain things do, in fact, theories do describe reality. But the scientific community as a whole, the people who are researching on it, has to be neutral. So you can have people who are fanatically committed for theories, people who are fanatically committed against theories, and a number in the middle who are swayed by the evidence. So and I guess, then and then they all balance out, out essentially. Yes, that's right, or usually they balance out. And that is the way science works. Scientists are human beings. Of course they have opinions, of course they have views, of course they have beliefs, but they've also got this commitment to finding out how the universe real works, really works. But I think works. you've hit on something that, as a scientist, I worry about slightly, in the, especially with the sort of rising sceptical community is that scientists are sort of put out there all the time and the scientific method is put out there all the time as a kind of, you know, these, I feel a bit like scientists are being put slightly on a pedestal, that here are these, you know, amazing people who are trying to find out how the world works and stuff. And part of me is like, yes, but we also have foibles. As you see it all the time with the, the Nobel disease, you know, that, that there are these people who then suddenly lose their way or something. And I just, I get slightly concerned that um, a little bit too much emphasis is put on you know, scientists being like, but, but you know, the pub put it out to the the public as scientists being sort of perfect and. Well, scientists are not perfect. I work in a, a school of science with sixty scientists, and I know they're not perfect. On the other hand. I would prefer to have scientists regarded in that way and their results taken seriously, rather than the kind of appalling disregard of scientific research that we found in fields like creation science, in the case of um, climate change denial. Um, for a long time, the tobacco companies funded scientists say that no uh, tobacco did not have bad health effects and was not addictive and so on. I would rather have scientists, or at least consensual scientific opinion, put on a little bit of a pedestal rather than being disregarded like that. But you've also then hit on that. So that, that um creationists and tobacco companies and all these people can have scientists in their pocket, you know, who, who are people who are essentially, you know, they've been, they have their PhD, whether it was in paleontology or something else, you know, that, that they can sort of say, you know, here's, here's my doctor so-and-so, and they say sort of the, the other, which is why I think having this sort of, having at least some reality check that, you know, there are, there are also scientists who have gone to the other side, um, I think is kind of important. Yes, that's right. Scientists are human beings. Uh, I think we should and Some of them go where the bucks are. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely, yes. <laughs> do, you th do you think that, to take creationism in particular, that um, people who go along and profess a belief in creationism really truly believe it, and, or, or are they just wanting to believe it and then wanting to have this evidence evidence, in scare quotes, shown to them to say, well, here, here are all these anomalies in evolution or whatever and, and so on. Therefore, evolution is not true, creation is true. Do you, do you think they really, really truly believe that the world is only 6,000 years old and, and, and was created pretty much as it is now and, and, and so on? Or, or is it really just wanting to sort of prop up their religious beliefs? Well, my answer to that is that the creation scientists I have met and run into are desperately sincere. Let's try for a moment to put ourselves into the mind of a, of a fundamentalist, a Christian fundamentalist. They have to believe, literally, 
in the, the Bible is the complete and revealed word of God and if they do not believe that then at the end of their lives they will go to hell what is more their children have to believe that or their children and all their loved ones will go to hell as well now therefore there's a desperate fear element in fundamentalism which drives them hysterically almost to believe those things even if as you're suggesting they actually find it very difficult to believe them so there's therefore that driven element if they're wrong then they're going to go to hell now therefore that is I think what drives them along this course they believe it they desperately believe it it would perhaps be the best way of putting it I hope that makes it clear I just I struggle as a with former this. fundamentalist and young earth creationist I don't know if that's necessarily the case for everybody I certainly don't remember ever since having a sense of fear about it it was more the fact that I'd never really considered any other possibilities and I'd always just been told that the Bible was true and that there was no other options uh, and then when I started to get involved with creationism it was very much um, we have all this great sciencey sounding stuff and I was like oh well that's fair enough then they know what they're talking about and when I finally came out of it I actually did get a very very strong sense of, of anger with the fact that, that is there someone at, right at the top of this who's passing down all this misinformation but actually really knows what's going on because it just seems so obvious once it's been explained to you. And how could the people at the top, the people that are debating with the scientists, how can they not they must, realize? They must know they're lying. They must know. I mean, Ray Comfort top. has been pointed out to him many, many times. He's a, he's a, a liar and he's getting his, his stuff wrong and yet he keeps teaching that to people. And that's that's where that's where where I was getting my information from, and I just I just believed it as literal truth. Okay, well let me produce a counterexample straight away. I talked to a student uh, some years ago at uh, what what's now part of Griffith University, what was then the Mount Gravatt College of, of Advanced Education, and the first thing he said to me was, um, "I don't want to go to hell. I want to believe what's right." And it turned out that he was a creationist. So there was the fear of hell straight away, all the way there. If that if that fear wasn't forced onto you, but clearly you were indoctrinated, you were given only one viewpoint and therefore perhaps your parents have that kind of fear do the people at the top know that they're faking my answer is they believe with desperate strength that their religious viewpoint is correct and they regard that religious viewpoint as being far more important than any trivial questions about getting little scientific fact right in fact one of the first statements in our creation science foundation statement of belief was that the scientific aspects of creation are important but that they are secondary in importance to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. They've got their priorities, they believe that with disparate strength and unlike scientists, they don't believe the, the details of the evidence of that are that important. And, and no, no evidence can possibly contradict the Bible, the religious ideas. No, well it must yeah. not of course because yeah. the Bible by definition is completely right. So you've got this the evidence must mindset. be wrong in some way because no evidence that's can possibly contradict That's very much contradict. the point of view. Yeah. Mm, yeah. That's oh, right. it just makes my head explode. I just can't deal with it at all. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna love this one then. The reason that so many scientists are pushing evolution is basically because Satan is behind them getting into their Absolutely. heads and making them do it. You are a, t are a, 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 minion, a minion of Satan. Oh, it's more than that. And they're also, these scientists, terrified of facing the absolute claims of God. Yes. Because God then demands everything of them, and they don't want to face that. So therefore, they, they fall into the grip of Satan. 
I don't understand this emotionally because I've never been a fundamentalist. I've studied what they write and what they write in their um, in their magazines for each other, and therefore I understand it intellectually. But I don't have that emotional grip that uh, that a true very, fundamentalist very hard to has. comprehend if you've never been there. Yes, I can imagine yeah. that. I'm aware that you've probably got other things you want to do as well. So oh, this is um, great fun. <laughs> Uh, and we have other people to interview. So um, thank you very much for joining us on the cusp and uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Martin. Just before we finish up, we were going to briefly talk about the conference. Uh, it was quite good, the conference, I thought. Particularly the Friday night. Oh, Friday night. No, there was a sceptical no. quiz. There was, wasn't there? Yes. No, and we don't need to mention that. We don't it, was, need to it was the team that you and I were on. Oh, we don't yeah, with some of the Dunedin in the public. Exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. Which and what? What oh, team were you on, Nathan? <coughs> so the um, Saturday was good too, I thought, and the uh, Sunday was good as well. We have to mention the fact that we had, we all had a bit of a giggle. So there was a talk on the Sunday by Simon Pollard, who I'm kind of not really clear what his talk was supposed to be about, but essentially he showed us lots and lots of photographs of how of gravestones and things like this, and essentially how people grieve, how and, people grieve and, and how which was interesting, different was cultures and yeah. stuff. Yeah, he didn't really come up. He didn't come up in the conclusions. It was just lots of photos. But when he put up a picture of Christ on the cross, there was a small aftershock, and the place just sort of erupted into giggles. And then he promptly took it. Oh, yeah, he said something along the lines of, now I'm going to show you some pictures of Jesus. He pushed the button, and, and the, the slide comes out, and there was an earthquake. It yeah, was great. it was really funny. So, yeah. but Correlation does not equal causation. Yes. I think that was kind of part of the joke there, Craig. Um, <laughs> Thanks for participating, though. It was really good. We really enjoyed it. Yeah, good. So next year, you should try and get along if you can. Be it's going Dunedin. to be in Dunedin. Dunedin next yes. year, quite right. Yes, that should be different. I don't think I've ever been to Dunedin. Yeah, so that's the Skeptics Conference. Okay, so, uh, Craig, you've got a quote for us? Uh, I do, I do. Um, this comes from um, a book I'm reading at the moment called God Know by Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller. And it goes, there is no God, and that's the simple truth. If every trace of, every, of any single religion were wiped out and nothing were passed on, it would never be created exactly that way again. There might be some other nonsense in its place, but not that exact nonsense. If all of science were wiped out, it would still be true and someone would find a way to figure it all out again. And the word of the day, uh, to make up for the fact that we didn't have much in the Woo Zealand section, is the Rutherford. The Rutherford is a unit of radioactive decay, which is equal to one million disintegrations per second. That's the Rutherford. And if you're standing that close to a Rutherford, <laughs> probably not a good idea. Yes. But I like the fact that you've sort of linked that to Woo Zealand, because it's not Woo at all. No, it's not Woo, but it's New Zealand. It's New Zealand-related word, obviously. Assuming that they're talking about the Rutherford we all know and love. Yes. All right. Who's on so, that bank note? He is. What's he on? 50? 100? <laughs> don't look at me. I don't know. Oh, well, someone will write in and tell us. Um, yeah, so that's it. You've been listening to The Cusp. If you'd like to send us a message or any feedback... Check out the Contact Us form on our website, thecusp.org.nz. Yeah.